Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. In today's episode, we have Emmer as our podcast guest, and Anthony Emmer and I are chatting about how to not only hire really great people on your team, but most importantly, how to train and coach them into truly becoming your top performers. Amr has worked as one of the first founding team members at Gitir, and then he moved on through a startup and a few entrepreneurial projects to actually be a product lead at Calm. So he definitely knows a thing or two about not only building great teams, but also great products. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learn a lot. Have fun. Hey, everyone. This is another episode of Teams at Work, and we are here today with Omer from Calm. And I can't wait to have this conversation because Omer and I got connected like a year ago, and it took us a while to schedule this. And finally, we got connected and found out that we have so many different interesting perspectives that we share, but we also differ on. So I'm really, really personally excited about this conversation. And welcome, Omer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a year of back and forth messaging. But I'm really glad that we're finally able to make it today. Super cool. Um, diving right in to find out more about you and your journey. And since we got connected with this topic of product leadership and leadership in general and also leadership development, let's start with the question of what does leadership actually mean to you? I think that might be the hardest question to start with of all things. Leadership in my sense is there are a lot of definitions for it, great definitions, but I think it's being the first person, the, the person in front of everything and just discovering and then showing the path to people. Interesting. I agree with you that there are so many definitions and I think like finding your own also kind of signalizes where you are at with your own journey. And I feel like mine changed over time. Did that also happen to you? Like, did you have different perspectives of what leadership meant in the past to you than it is now? Well, I didn't have, let's say, big changes to my perception of leadership, but it, I've gained new understandings of how leadership works in different situations. It's just, I've always imagined this like we are lost in the forest together. Let's say we're five people. I'm at the front. I'm chopping down the plants to find a path for us. But also you are maybe in the second row trying to look at a map and try to find where we are or which direction should we go. Who is the leader here? Mm, Interesting. Well, you both are the leaders. You do different things. Both are equally important, but still they, it's just people perceive it differently. People think that if you're at the front, you're the leader. 
Yeah. Not necessarily, not every time. If you're at the back, you're just a follower. No, not necessarily. I think in this scenario, I'd always be afraid to be in the very back. It's the most dangerous place to be because you are the one responsible for everyone so they don't get lost. So that's also another leader. In that terms, I think that's kind of what you're asking. Leadership can be defined very differently in very different situations. Yeah, totally. I think situational like approaches to leadership or seeing leadership as a behavior rather than like a position or a trade or a person even, I think is definitely, we align on that and bunch as well. And I think it's a more kind of mature understanding, I think, of what leadership means. Yeah, behavior rather than person, personality or status. I also think it's a really beautiful way to illustrate that concept. Like you're lost in a forest, you have these two different roles. Who's the leader? Like so true. it's truly fundamental to the way we see things. It's an interesting way to approach it. So thinking about front and back, who have been the sort of examples or role models for leadership in your life and career? Second hardest question in the podcast. Yeah, that really competes. I've had many great examples. The the famous ones, of course, like everybody, I'm not going to name them. I get afraid naming them, but uh, there are a lot of celebrity leaders and especially in the tech world, there are a lot of people that I look up to. But when you say leadership, I try to think it differently. So they're not the first names that come to mind, but what about Gandhi? Mm. What about Sun Tzu? He was a kind of a military engineer back in his time, but uh, looking at his book, Art of War, he is leading the whole country from his position in a different area. So I try to look at people who lead without just being in the very front, who just orchestrate things maybe behind the curtains or just be themselves and that it basically influences other people. And there are many other names that you wouldn't know. They're personally in my life, uh, friends, family, and those characters and role models, they have been really inspiring over the course of my life. Some more than the famous ones, but some at certain points of life where You just needed one sentence and they've been a great leader for you, changing your life or moving that in a different direction. What inspired you about them? What like qualifies someone to be a role model? That's an interesting question. I think for me, it's if they are different, if they're looking at the world in a different way from through a different lens, if there's something that uh, there is that I could learn from them a different perception I could try to understand. That has been really exciting and interesting for me. For example, I've, I know we haven't went there yet, but I've worked as a co-host for a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And the actual host was someone really interesting for me. He was basically the reason I was there. I was watching him. He was really influencing on YouTube. And then I got to meet him to work on some other projects. Somehow I ended up being the co-host of the program. But once I got to know him, once you see behind that screen, uh, behind that YouTube channel, he was a really, really interesting person. And the way he looked at the world was really inspiring for me because it was very new. It was something you didn't see that wasn't shared with the, let's say, rest of the world. And In time, I I got to understand this is the case with a lot of leaders. Mm -hmm. There is this persona 
this character they embody to be a leader. Mm-hmm. But also there is something, let's say usually, mm-hmm. deeper on the background. They are also people who try to understand how people work, how our brains work, how society works. And that's how they become leaders. That's by becoming an example, becoming something different, becoming someone people try to be, actually. Interesting. Maybe switching gears a little and like looking back onto your professional and career journey, you've worked for so many different and cool places. I mean, talking about brands, right? From Gitir to like an AR startup to now Calm and many things in between as well. Could you share with us a little bit more about what made these experiences maybe different and what was it like? Like how different is it to work at, let's say like a high growth, very quickly scaling delivery uh, scale up and company versus like a mindfulness company versus AR? I think one thing that wasn't making any difference was the industry. Mm. Lately, I've been seeing people trying to find industry specific employees, uh, especially on product management. It's becoming a hot topic. Like, do you need to be experienced in, let's say, software as a service to work in software as a service? And that's out of nowhere becoming a chicken and an egg situation. Mm -hmm. But the industry didn't really matter. And if you also ask this to engineers, it doesn't matter if they're coding an AR app or let's say a delivery app. Yes, in some specific cases, it's important to have domain-specific knowledge, but that's something you can learn. And what I've seen with myself and all my teams that the most important skill was to the ability to learn mm-hmm. by yourself. But the different thing was the size and the stage of those companies. So mm-hmm. with get here, I joined, let's say, at the second round of hires. They did a hackathon and my team came in second. And nice. I was there to get hired. And I was upfront and honest with that. Right after the competition, I said, when should we expect some kind of a job offer? That worked out fine. <laughs> it was a little bit risky, but it worked out. But with that team, I've joined them. They already had built something that I was excited about. How big were they when that happened? Well, the engineering team was, I guess, about five people. Oh, so small, actually. It was still small. But I'm trying to say that I wasn't part of the initial team. But like basically the second, yeah, the extended team. <laughs> yeah. That was really exciting because you get to know that first team and some of their struggles and also you're lucky that you weren't part of those struggles because it's that first team always they go through a lot that's the the garage team that's the basement team but you still get to reap the benefits of being in the core yeah like people environment so that was i think one of the most delightful journeys in my professional career but when i joined this new ar company they already kind of had an engineering team, but the product was very new. So we got to build it from scratch. And that is a challenge. That's a big challenge. But at the same time, you get more freedom than you could ever want in, especially if you're a product manager, you get to shape this thing from the very beginning. There are far less constraints, especially when we built that app, AR was very new. It was just announced. And we were going to be one of the first to deploy the app to the App Store. So the industry was different, very different, actually. But it was about team communication and the stage of the company. 
And there are a few other companies in my timeline, but now at Calm, where I work, have been working as a contractor on the product side, I've joined this scale-up. They have a large established brand. They have now hundreds of people working for them. And here it's even more different because now you have more stakeholders and not just people, like single person stakeholder, but there are teams, there are even some third-party stakeholders that you have to be mindful of. That is a different kind of challenge, I would say. I can't pick a favorite. I was about to ask, which one did you prefer? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think I would say Gitir because it was my first startup experience and I really connected with the team over there. But if we just remove that emotional part, I think they all have different flavors. It's about what you're looking for. Are you looking for more, let's say, structure where you work? Or do you enjoy more freedom or neither? Camaraderie as well. Yeah. Interesting. I would love to peel back actually and talk about something you, or dive deeper into something you said a few minutes ago, the ability to learn. Why is that now the most important thing? And uh, tell us more about maybe where you heard that or why your experience makes you believe that that's true. I think I'm, I'm lucky in a way that I was born into the computer era and I got to experience the first stages of internet. So that's where this learning journey begins. Actually, you discover that you can find knowledge. Actually, I'm sorry, I take that back. It started with encyclopedias. We had a few at home. So there is this free knowledge that you can basically know anything you want to. I can't say for sure how I did that, but I've somehow learned how to learn things. And that really shaped my career because right now I'm working as a lead product manager. Before this, I worked as a software engineer and I don't have any formal training in either. I actually studied industrial design, which is, it's, let's say connected, but it's a whole nother thing uh, compared to the other two. And I got here by just knowing how to learn things, knowing how to improve myself. So I really believe that this applies to everyone. This is not a skill that you born into. But this is something you also need to learn, how you can learn new things, how you can apply them to your life. And if you have that, I'll just hire you on the spot because I know, yes, it's a little bit of an effort. But if you have the right personality for the team, if you have the right mindset, I'd be delighted to teach you things. I'd be delighted to show you what you need to learn and let you explore that. That means that... That's the thing that makes domain-specific knowledge or any kind of domain or industry-specific skill meaningless for, for companies, if you can learn, which is, by the way, what a lot of people are doing right now. It's I don't think a lot of people who work in tech actually study tech, but they just learn. They just hone their skills to pass uh, screenings, they how to pass interviews. Isn't that like an entirely broken experience? We like do all these things to get behind the like guards. And then once you're in, you're supposed to move around anyways. And I'm not just saying that from like a, you're supposed to, because somebody told me perspective, like I expect that from our team members, right? Like they're on the team and then I expect them to be problem solvers to focus on what needs to be done and then just pick up things and do them and they use whatever skills they have. And I never even 
think about what background they have. Like I never even look at people's CVs anymore. I think we work only with LinkedIn at this point to a degree that you get to know a person, you understand what's important to them. And you spend a lot of time doing that during onboarding in the first week so that you have a clear picture on like, what are they interested in? What are they excited about? What do they need to learn and want to learn maybe? And you kind of start assigning and staffing based on that. So like actually where you came from originally, like place less and less off a roll. It's so true. And we're just like charading that for like the interview process. I mean, I'm just exaggerating it obviously right now, but yeah. There is definitely some like a disconnect here somehow. I think this also touches a little bit to the imposter syndrome. I think like everyone is feeling a part of it right now. It's because we are used to learning things and you never know that if you learn enough or if you are the expert now. But it's been very eye-opening for me to see a lot of people that I admire. They also know a certain amount of things and they also try to learn so it doesn't mean if you are this great influencer a great let's say product leader that shares great knowledge on LinkedIn or on other places that doesn't mean they're done learning that doesn't mean they are at this point which is like hey now I'm the master of this no they they are also on their own journey and you are on your own journey somewhere that also doesn't mean you are not at the same level or somewhere far from them. It's just you're probably at somewhere different because you've been traveling on a different path. And I think that is the mindset that just unlocks a lot of knowledge that you can learn basically anything if you want, if you re- are really interested and that you can become an expert in that. And this is all sort of rolled up, at least over the last couple of years, in this concept of it's a very popular concept of growth mindset, right? I think the learning thing is definitely a part of growth mindset. And I'm I'm not the psychologist in the room, Daria is, of course, but this sort of learning agility is really, uh, for no pun intended, but picking up speed, like it's becoming very mainstream. But you mentioned it that it has been such a a key element to, or you said I would hire you on the spot. I mean. Well, one, how are you looking for this? Do you have any specific actionable tips or things that you've done to actually get at this in your own experience or also hiring others? And um, maybe some general other learnings around hiring. So alongside the learning, like what other things are, what other things are making that I'll hire you on the spot case clear? Well, I have some tactics, let's say curveballs to understand if you are a learner or not. It starts with this. To be able to learn something, you first need to know that you don't know something. You need to be able to accept that you don't know a certain topic or a certain answer to a question. If you can do that easily, that means you're open to learning now. And the next step is how quickly you can learn. How are your learning skills? In my line of work, you can just understand part of that during the interview and part of that, let's say, working on a case study. So I try to ask people some questions that I guess that they wouldn't know about and their responses to those really give away how they think about it. It's very hard for a lot of people to say, I don't know. Let me look that up or let me just research about that and get back to you so we can discuss it further. It sounds really easy, but it's really hard for me to do sometimes because you want to know the answer. 
you think you know the answer. You just maybe don't remember. But sometimes you just have to say, hey, I never heard of that. But I'd be eager to learn. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like, I think it gets easier over time, I feel. But it it's true. It never There is always friction when you get to this point. You always have to like intentionally choose to not over-promise to, to yourself or over-commit. I would love to dive a little bit deeper into product nerd land, if you're up for it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'll give my best shot for that. I'm sure that best shot is as much better than mine. So let's <laughs> let's dig in. I was thinking about full stack product teams in the past 12 months or so. And at Bunch, we have been making moves to develop our formerly like engineering team and then the product managers plus designer kind of split into an actual full stack product team, which included a few different things amongst others, hiring product engineers or promoting product engineers rather than specialized iOS engineers, for instance, and moving the overall process much closer together and kind of like team up uh, PMs with engineers from the very, very beginning of the journey of discovering the product features or solution that they're working on. So I wanted to hear your take on this all. Like, how do you see that topic in the consumer space in particular, because I do think it's more a consumer type of thing, at least for now. And I think it has to do with the fact that we are like much, much more focused on end user value now and like really focusing on the human that we actually serving independent of the business model. So just share your thoughts around like, how did you see the structure in product teams change or how we actually adopted our processes over time, kind of zooming into the human at the end of all of this yeah that's something i i keep thinking about and to be honest i feel that we are at a stage which will give birth to a lot of new titles new positions because product manager is now uh let's say at some companies it's not very well defined and at some companies it's just overdefined. so product managers don't know what they are responsible Or we have this new title, uh, up-and-comer product operations managers, which manage the product operations, which is also a new thing. I'm, let's say, kind of new to product engineers, but we'll just keep hearing more and more product people. And I know it's frightening for especially product managers, and it's at the same time exciting for, let's say, designers and engineers and researchers. But this is, when you say product, you that is now the company. One really important thing is now the product led growth. Like a team job. Yeah. yeah. Especially today, where we see, unfortunately, a lot of layoffs in huge numbers. We see the economy going places that we didn't even imagine would go. It will become more clear what companies are just great marketing models and what companies are really, really product-led. Because eventually when the consumer, when the end user is just, let's say, low on cash, they'll pick the things that they actually need or they want. And those translate into products because they can see through marketing. Yes, we give into that. We like some advertisement we want to try. We want to feel like that person in the advertisement. But the bottom line is, I'll just keep paying, let's say, for my email app, if it comes down to it. I'll one by one drop a lot of things. This is really 
hard and important to say, especially now I'm working in mental health industry, because it's an industry where people, it, it's still a huge stigma. Even in the most developed countries, people don't want to create a budget for that. Yes, we want to learn how to be mindful, but we don't want to spend a lot of money on it, even if that eventually means we'll spend less money on a lot of other things, especially in healthcare. But you have to orient around your product. One, that's what people want and they will pay for. Two, marketing is really expensive. If you build a marketing company and your investor says, hey, uh, we got to cut our budget, I would want to find a way to just stop advertising than to cut people off. Absolutely. I know it's not simple like that, but if you are focused on the product, a product will tug everything forward. It's like the harder puzzle to solve, but it's just so much more sustainable for the business and also so much more valuable for the end user and whoever is at the on the other side of that company that is producing value. So that's, I think, the part that Anthony and I were also discussing at length in the past uh, few days that probably makes entrepreneurs excited about the current opportunity. Obviously, the conversations we are all having in our companies are not the easiest ones. And I think being streamlining your costs and, and budgets, it's definitely, I think, on everyone's table at this point. But the bright side of it is really that it actually boils down to like what's essential in business, which is providing value to someone. And that value needs to be so undeniable that they are actually ready to pay for it. And we are measuring that value in that payment that we receive. And in the end, it's kind of like really, really goes back to basics of businesses in the end on an accounting or financial layer, revenue minus cost equals profit and profit kind of like allows you to reinvest in new development, innovation, and new value. But on the user's end, it's kind of like really simple. Do I need you? Do I want you? And if neither of these things are the case, you probably are not going to stick around. I think you're absolutely spot on. And that's that's actually a great outcome, I think, of challenging economical times that we kind of go back to what really matters. Yeah. One example I can give, it's very interesting to me. There is an app I developed myself, I guess, a decade ago. Wow. I've actually sold the app in time, mm -hmm. but there are still some users who keep using the old version. They refuse to update. They refuse to change it. I don't own the app anymore. I just own the previous versions. And there is still ad revenue and in-app purchase revenue coming from there. Wow. I know there are a lot of great competitors out there. I mean, I didn't do a single thing in 10 years. But that means that product solves a specific problem in a way that people really prefer. So they just refuse to switch over. And that means everything goes to my profit column because there is no cost. The only cost, I guess, is the App Store fee. You just have to pay to keep those alive. But it feels really interesting to me. I think that is what you want to build. That is sustainable. That is something that you can build on top of. So coming back to your question, yes, we'll keep seeing more and more product roles popping up because it should be about the product itself. I'm not just trying to diminish the value of marketing and operations and everything else, but product is something that you can, let's say every cent, every penny you put in product is a solid value. It doesn't go away. 
unlike with advertisement where you just need to pay and pay and pay to keep people interested, keep people in the know. Yeah. That's just an infinite, infinite loop. Yeah. And maybe doubling down on that or kind of as an as a follow up to this, talking about roles, I wanted to hear your take on like the CPO, CTO situation that we also see as I think of as a result of that development product teams becoming more full stack, engineers becoming part of product organizations, product managers becoming kind of like peers of engineers in that sense. I think it also has to do with the no-code movement as well, where we can actually like do more together rather than like separate. And a few companies made that move that they actually either tucked the engineering department under like the product and then the CPO leads both, or we have a CTO that is also very product-minded and it's actually a CPTO in that sense. And that person then leads both areas of organizations. Do you have any observations, takes, learnings on that? Like, have you seen that work out better or worse? Or do you believe in this? That's difficult for me to answer. I, at some point, worked as, let's say, CPTO. Mm -hmm. But it's a question of resources. If you don't have enough resources, yes, that makes sense to a certain point. But I think those two are, especially at the C-level, very important roles. Again, it depends on what kind of product you're building. If, if you don't have a lot of services, microservices, servers, a lot of things to manage, a huge code base, yeah, you can just join those two if you have a, a product officer that knows about tech. To this day, I, I can still code full stack, both on mobile and on web, but that doesn't necessarily make me a great CTO. Mm -hmm. I would definitely want to hire someone who is an expert, especially on things that are not just related to software, but also hardware and systems design. Because that I've seen that, yes, I've learned how to code myself, but I'm always hesitant to call myself a software engineer because I missed on all the, let's say, fundamentals. And I had to learn those down the line after like having a job in this area, after having earned money. But then I saw that, yes, even if these feel outdated, it does. I mean, it feels like you don't need to learn about memory management now because all the modern languages do that for you. But still, someone who knows that... You can run into challenges. Yeah, can make a difference, can make an app or a product uh, be more performant. So that's what you want in these C-level roles. People with real expertise that can move the needle when it's needed, maybe just by 1%. But if you're a startup, you're just 10 people, you're bootstrapping. I don't think it really matters because there are a lot of other things that you can do to move the needle by 5%, maybe 10%. So you should focus on those first. But when it comes down to refinement, you should definitely give people their own domain. At the same time, there is a contradicting thought that I always have. Some of the people in these roles, it, it's hard to say, it's, they perform on a different level, just becomes the work of a board member. Mm -hmm. So especially for larger organizations, that's really important to define because you want those C-level people to do actual hands-on work a lot of the time, but if they're just advisors, if they're just people who show you a direction, they belong in your board or 
maybe they belong to work as a consultant or just an advisor. That's important for the companies or the organizations to decide and define. Why do you think it's important that the C-level are more kind of operationally involved as well? One quick answer, because otherwise you have a board for that. You have a lot of great people that you can take advice from. The C-level, let's say the CTO and CPO have directors in their direct reports who are tasked with building strategy and building teams. So what is left there for the CTO and CPO? If they're just visionaries, that feels like the role of the CEO of the company. Yes, I want everyone to be a visionary in their own area and in their own team. But at the same time, you want people to, I'm always product oriented. So you want people to contribute to making that product work instead of having to prove their own, let's say, knowledge, their own experience. You don't want people to try and build the best tech that is out there, but you want people to build the best tech for this product so that it's successful. I think that also has a lot to do with maintaining or working with limited resources. Yeah, got it. Interesting perspectives. I don't know whether I agree with all of them, but I also don't have to. That's the beauty. But I definitely hear you on the domain expertise on a certain level is important in the end. And I really like to reference around the 1%. I think oftentimes that's how it feels from my perspective as well when we work with our team, like I always try to actually look for that 1% impact zone because I know that most of the time I just need to get out of the way of people and like get the right people on the bus in the right seats and then just let them do their thing. But there are those moments where I feel like, oh, if I don't step in right now and I nudge towards this direction, we probably will miss a big opportunity. And so like, it's all about these like the 1% impact zones. I find that a really good mental model that I also felt over the past years or discovered. I think that's part of the hands-on work that I'm talking about. It's not just, you don't sit there dreaming about the future of, let's say if you're the CTO, the future of how you architect your servers, you can let someone else do that, but you can still be in a lot of meetings and you're basically the person that needs to be in the know of everything so that you can be the glue. You can help other teams support other teams at the right times, at the right places. So that's kind of hands-on work I'm, I'm trying to describe. Yeah, yeah, like very targeted. Makes sense. Well, man, I'd love to, you we were sort of talking about how difficult the current state of the market is for teams. And I do think, I don't want to pivot us too far away from this thread, but I, I would love to, I'd love to know in the light of what you just shared and went back and forth with Daria on, like what have been the most difficult catalyzing moments for you in your career? What were those experiences like? And and walk us through maybe sort of what got you through them? I've had a lot of those moments because I think I enjoy working in tough environments with limited resources. I think it feels like it just enables me and my role in, in my teams. So I've operated in challenging environments. Uh, I could say the same with my work at Calm. We're working on something very new and it's, let's say, very different from what Calm has done until now. And we're trying to do that with very, very limited resources in terms of people, let's say budget, and also various other resources. That is always a challenge, but that's a great challenge to learn from. As you said, some companies 
unfortunately, we'll have to learn that now to get through this period. But one thing that was, I can name and dive deep into is that my experience at Cosmos Group, they are an e-commerce company, not very well known in terms of the brand, but it's a company that is the leading brand in its category on Amazon and various other marketplaces. And it was a huge challenge for them to get there. It's a company based in Turkey, which has offices all around the world. And when I joined them, they were already at the brink of this success in terms of, let's say, sales and revenue and profits. But they are an e-commerce company who had just a single software engineer who was trying to do everything. And the rest of the company was trying to operate on spreadsheets, Google Sheets, Google Docs to keep everything together. I thought that I was joining a more structured environment, but my tasks quickly became from, let's say, helping develop a few tools that we could use to, hey, this is not going to help. We'll have to build a team and we'll have to build a lot of services and software so we can actually enable this business to become the best and one of the top ones. Because it's really difficult to scale if you are missing out on the digitization part because they are the producer and that story begins for them at least even manufacturing some of their raw materials to mid-mile delivery. So you get yarns from China which become fabrics in Istanbul and then those fabrics become home textile products which when you order them, get made and get delivered to you in five days. I'm not claiming the success of Amazon's delivery here, but uh, imagine the whole operation behind that. And imagine that you are trying to maintain that on Google Sheets. First, I was impressed. Second, I was really afraid that what I was getting into. And that has been one of the greatest challenges for me because I was trying to build a team in a place where well, the, the company's headquarters were positioned in a part of Istanbul to gather the best physical production resources, best sewing machine operators, best manufacturing employees. So when I tried to find the best tech employees, they didn't want to join. Most of them were already going abroad. The ones that were staying were being hired for just unbelievable salaries by, let's say, the tech giants now get here, uh, EMX Sepeti, which, which is a part of Delivery Hero. So I'm left there with a limited budget, with very limited set of people that I can reach out to. And building those teams was the hardest thing I've actually did while also developing the products, the tools that we needed to scale that business up. When I joined, I had a single software engineer that I was working hand in hand with. I did real hands-on work to help things move forward. By the time I left, we had two different pods working on various products in engineering with their respective engineering and product managers. We had structured design teams, content teams, and operations teams. I was running about 50 people, and it still wasn't enough. The resource problem gets even harder because I've just hired the best I could find and the pool just got smaller and smaller. There are a lot of takes I could share, but I think the most important one was 
I know this from the feedback from my team, and this can loop us back into leadership. I was always there with them in the trenches. We, we sat together side by side. Most of my day was trying to keep everything together, but I always found some time to actually work with them, mentor them, make them, let's say, better engineers, because I was trying to make them into something that I was uh, having difficult to find. That's also where learning comes in. These people were really eager to learn because they they also knew about the market. They wanted to become better and they were open. There are people who never actually written a line of code in their careers, but they were good with e-commerce. They understand the basics of the internet. So I helped them become software developers so they could also contribute so we could expand our team. That has been my challenge, trying to make something from almost nothing. But it was the most fulfilling one that I, I think I've uh, been. And I really appreciate it. I think it's super relevant for us all today in this current environment and for all our listeners. Maybe to kind of double down on that and tie the tie the knot, what do you think helped you there? Like what mindset or tactics, hacks did you use to kind of also focus yourself on the task at hand and really push through and kind of how did you conquer these challenges? What helped you? I think it's being persistent and it's being perseverant. You just come to work every day. There is this huge umbrella goal you want to have X number of orders every single day, but you have a smaller task that you can accomplish. Today, I'll just help one of my employees in this area help them excel, or I'll just find a solution to this interpersonal problem they're having. This even comes down to back in the day, we were in offices, not working from home, but that comes down to where people sit. So you have the best collaboration and best performance. What I did my best and what really worked was going to work every day and attacking the same problem over and over again, if that's necessary saying the same things, showing the same thing to same people. At some point, it works. I'm not going to talk about outliers, but being persistent really works. And repeating the same message multiple times, I think that's also a very important one that we... Yes. Even if that means some people will leave because they don't like the message, they don't like the delivery, it works for the company, it works for the product. I think that's part of being a leader. You have to keep moving forward. At least you have to keep moving. So at some point it becomes forward. Somewhere where you think forward is. You don't fully know, but (laughs) you assume. I mean, if you hit a wall, it doesn't make sense to just turn away or find another path. Sometimes, yes, there are ways around it, but... Yeah, yeah. But sometimes you have to like actually knock the wall down, which is... Yeah, if you can't see a way around, you just have to move towards that wall. And at some point it will just come down. Yeah, that's super, super inspiring. Thank you for, I'm glad I followed up on that. I have also a quick follow-up before I ask sort of the take us home golden question that we ask all our guests. Um, I'm sure, and I'm not sure, I'm 100% certain. I have this question and I know many other people do. How do you stay, or has anything changed for you? How do you stay in the trenches with your team nowadays? Everything's remote. Can you achieve the same result? What does it look like for you nowadays? It's difficult. Because when you're there, the presence means a lot. Maintaining some kind of a presence digitally, it's not the same. Yes, you can you can say hi to everyone on Slack. You can ask 
them about their personal lives, that things that you remember, which is still relevant and very important. But it's definitely not the same as looking people in the eye or just sitting side by side. I think we still need to figure that out. I know some companies believe that going back to office is the key. Yes, it will solve some of the problems, but there is this new digital world forming. Some people will never go back to the office. We have this, I don't want to go into that too much, but this actual digital world coming our way, which might or might not be the answer to all of these. I think the only advices I can give is that now you have to pay more attention to people's personal lives because at the office you were able to chit chat. You can know about things, you can hear about things next to the water cooler, but now you really have to ask people how they are, how they or weekend was, what's going on in their lives. And that is the utmost important thing for a leader to have some form of personal connection with the people they want to lead. 100%. Yeah, it's always uh, just because you touched on it, it's just such an important leadership principle. And, you know, we throw around these phrases like being in the trenches. And I think um, nowadays it's changed for, you know, even if you were a good leader in person, it's just changed so drastically. So thought I would touch on it. But the last question, and you've already spent the last like 10 minutes or so sharing tons, but I, I have to ask it out of principle. If you could go back in time and wind all the way back to those first few or the very first management role, your first promotion to team leader, I don't know how it was in specifically your journey. If you could go back in time and give yourself one or two of the most important lessons, what would they be? I'll quickly share one more thing that also touches to this question. And I'm sad that I've skipped that. One of my great role models in leadership was my grandfather. I was lucky to be born into a, a family business, which doesn't exist now, unfortunately. What did they do? We used to produce mattresses and he basically scaled that entire thing by himself. Wow. And the most influencing thing that I've learned from him, which just I just shared, is that he used to go into the factory every day, every single day. He would be the first person there and he would ask every single one of the workers about their families. And he would actually know everyone by their name and also know, let's say someone's kid got sick last week. He would know, he would follow up. And that just gains you a lot of great people. So for me, I think the moment I realized that I want to go into leadership was that you learn how to do things. Then at some point you realize that there is a limit that you can learn. Not in terms of, let's say, learning about one thing, but learning about a lot of things. So you have this certain capacity, then you realize that you need more people to help you in certain areas. That means you need to be able to work with those people. You need to find those people and maybe train those people and get their help. And you have to influence those people to join you. It's just like a startup. You have to pitch your ideas. You have to earn their trust and make them believe. So they also do their 100% to help you. It was partly this and partly when I was working at Getir, we didn't have a formal product team. I was in engineering and I was getting frustrated because some projects were moving slow or they were going in the wrong direction. So I started 
back channeling with other teams like marketing and data, it took me a while to learn that there is, that's called product management. You don't have to back channel, but you could just do that at the... Officially. <laughs> that's how I got into product management. I realized that I have great experience and knowledge in various areas, including design, engineering, and business. And it came naturally to me to form those connections. So why not do it officially? So it's easier and more effective. I'm sorry if that doesn't answer your question directly, but I'd be happy to go back and fill in the blanks. No, no, no. All good. I think very, very thoughtful and great answers. Go ahead, Daria. I really, I think I, when I was listening to you, I picked up a thought that I wanted to make explicit because I think it may help, especially I think new managers or some of our listeners that are leading teams. From what, how you were describing it, I almost felt as someone who's building a team, as the person, the first person in charge, as you grow the team, there's more people in charge and we all start to lead. But as the kind of like this originator of a team, it's actually your responsibility to extract the value from people. So like the way to think about hiring from what I heard from you is kind of feeling a understanding what are you trying to do in order to produce value and walk these first steps on the path to kind of understand how the process works approximately. And when you start stretching yourself too much and you actually start noticing, like, I can't fully do that by myself anymore. We can't fully do that with what we have, but we also know what we need. It's the time for to look for people. But I think what sometimes people get wrong is that when they bring people on, they kind of expect these people to produce value or like to just bring value with them. And I think what I liked about how you were describing it is that it's actually your responsibility as the originary team or whoever like is actually hiring to extract that value from the people. So it's actually on you to think about how can you really suss out that impact from that new person and kind of like really fit them in into the puzzle that you already have and only then expect that they actually can maintain and grow from there, but kind of not actually just drop them in the in the system and then let them try to figure it out uh, yourself. I think especially in the startup environment, we often make that mistake. I believe that we bring people on, we can't really extract the value right away. We then think, oh, okay, it didn't work. It's probably the wrong person. And then we end up doing that with another person again. And then it's actually becomes obvious like, oh, the extracting value job is with you as the hiring party at first. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. This is something I've really seen a lot, especially, as I said, I've, I've received... Uh, a lot of job offers in the last year. And I've been focusing at startups and this is something they really struggle with. And I'm also glad that you used the puzzle example because that really fits. You have this piece that you want to have, but if you don't already have the place for it, it won't work. You'll just place it somewhere, hope that is the right place and it will just linger there until it doesn't anymore. You have to have that blank space to fit that right piece in. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. I'm seeing a lot of new startups. Their CEOs, they feel like they need a product person. But at the same time, they are not ready to give the reins to another, another employee yet. They don't want to hire a leadership position. They mostly want to hire someone to pick up the slack. And hopefully, as you said, bring that value ready-made. But that's not necessarily how things work. You have to find the right person and then you have to shape them into the role you need if they're open to it. That's not easy. And the most important thing, what I can 
uh, let's say this is my free advice to all the startup CEOs. <laughs> I know it, you don't feel like it's time to give the reins, but when you feel like that, it will be too late to find the perfect person and have him fill fill in those shoes. You have to find someone that you can trust and coach them into becoming that part of you because everybody wants this perfect person who can do things their way. That doesn't exist, but people can learn. People can pick up your style, your your way of doing things. And for that to happen, my experience tells me that you need at least a year so people get used to the way of things, the way you do things. And that's the way it works, unfortunately. I know you don't have the resources or you don't have the time, but you'll never have the time. Yeah, and I think that especially these times remind It reminded me, we just had a conversation with our team as well about what this current situation means for us and what we need to, what steps we need to take. And I think I pulled up a quote that we all know probably like necessity is the mother of invention. And it's really true. I think constraints do produce some of the best inventions that we have ever seen in history of humanity. And I really deeply believe that it's actually a good thing to be in a constrained environment. And so just because you don't have the resources to hire right now, I think that doesn't free you up from like, thinking about the challenge of attracting that talent, building a relationship with them, finding creative ways of how to get them engaged into your venture before it's time to actually really do the hire and like the transition and the official handover and all of that. So I think I really appreciate the advice. I think it's really valid. And oftentimes we think about it from a almost too factual or financial perspective, like, oh, I don't have budget yet, so I don't need to worry. I need to hire this person I have budget for. So true, but also, as you said, it will be too late. So I think the like, kind of building, rolling out the carpet like process also needs to happen at, at some level and it takes time. So I really, I really appreciate the reminder. I think it's super sound. Yeah. Well, it's still an active, active topic for me. I'm also learning as I speak with a lot of founders and a lot of startup people, but there are things that are already discovered and solved. So I think it's also important to follow those learnings that just applies to everyone. Is it time for the last question, Anthony? I already asked it. I already asked it. It's funny, it got weaseled in there, but that's what led to this last thread. So, I mean, from my perspective, this has been hugely valuable, Omar. And I, I, I like Daria, have, have soaked up a ton of insights here. And I think um, kudos for just being so detailed and transparent about a couple of those episodes and journeys. And I think that's what um, that authenticity is what first time managers out there need, because otherwise, it leadership is one of those. It's a science, sure. Like we understand a lot more about it now than ever before, but it is still a lot of an art, right? And I think we learn through those stories still a lot more, which is why the role models, the episodes, the anecdotes, those things are just hugely helpful. So that's a lot for me. So I hugely thank you and appreciate you for coming on. Yeah, well, thank you both for having me. And it's been my pleasure because I've said this to Daria before, uh, having questions to answer, it makes it easy to collect your thoughts and actually just pass on that value. And thank you for helping me do that. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. And it's been a huge pleasure. And I hope we get to do this again. So maybe episode two is somewhat down the line. Thanks so much. And see you next time, everyone, or hear you next time. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch.
At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.